Hello fun people, I'm Isaac Carlson and on Following Dreams, I'm focused on exploring the stories of people who are following their passions and achieving their dreams. I want to help inspire you to pursue what you love by hearing how others have done it. This is my little video interview podcast series, which means that if you want, you can listen to the audio version of everything I make on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. In the video realm, I've got Watso videos, and in the audio realm, we have Watso Radio. And if you enjoy what the series is doing, then consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and telling a friend about the show. Today, we're speaking to a man who has been active in the animation world for decades, along with everything from being uh, a layout artist to a writer, and he's even been a showrunner. He's taken on adult series like The Simpsons and King of the Hill, has worked on Rocco's Modern Life and Pete the Cat, but he's most famous for bringing to life one major monogram through his voice and for his work co-creating the world showcased in Milo, Milo's Murphy's Law ugh, and Phineas and Ferb. To see the project that's been released most recently that he's been a part of, head to Disney Plus to check out Candace Against the Universe. Welcome, Jeff. Jeff Swampy Marsh. Well done. That was a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Glad to be here, man. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited to be able to speak to you today. It's You've been able to do a lot of super cool things in your time, and I, I'm excited to be able to hear all about it. <laughs> it's, 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 it's been a good little career, considering how late <laughs> I got started. It's turned out pretty well. I have no complaints. <laughs> <laughs> well... Right away, the question I always like to ask at the beginning is, what are you passionate about? What gets you excited about everything that you've done in your career? Um, for I mean, it started out when I first got into this, just the fact that I, I, I remember literally the day I got my first job in animation mm -hmm. um, and how wonderful it was and how completely um <laughs> just a little bit disorienting really and i I'd, I'd been at my desk for a week it was the second monday i came in where i sat down looked at my drawing table and just sort of burst into tears so all of my new coworkers got to come in and see the new guy sitting at his desk crying which was you know <laughs> fine but i just all of a sudden that realization uh, that they were going to pay me to do this, mm -hmm. just how gloriously wonderful and cool that was, just sort of washed over me all at once. Um, and the fact that I can, I can earn a living being creative, a really good living is one thing. Mm -hmm. That gets me up every day. But when I started doing shows... And especially when it got to Phineas and Ferb, mm -hmm. the feedback that I get from people about the impact that these shows and these characters have had on people's lives, it was completely unexpected. Um, that's the thing that really inspires me to find out that, you know, something you've created becomes the show that families bond over, or in some cases, the things that have lifted people out of depressions or inspired people to pursue their dreams or any one of a million amazing things that we've heard that you know this show has done for people that's not only inspiring it's really humbling um yeah it lets me know that you know um 
I always tell this to, to people that are animators that may be going through difficult periods. It's like what you do may seem trivial, but this stuff, this entertainment, this ability to laugh, to move people is really important to so many in ways that you can't even realize. And I've been lucky enough being a show creator to receive, to be the one who actually receives the letters from people and read them about how much some silly little show like this matters. Mm -hmm. so there, that's my, my <laughs> gushy <laughs> answer to your question. No, that's, that is an incredible answer to a, a, a pretty loaded question. And <laughs> in yeah. a lot of respects, um, it's, you know, the, it's, it's great that to hear that it has been such a humbling experience for you. And it's been something that's meant so much to you, just like it's meant so much for so many other people. It's really cool to be able to hear that the people that work on these like shows and movies and things that people really get invested in into outside of their lives also are really passionate about working on it themselves. So I think that's, I think that's fantastic to be able to hear you articulate. <laughs> it's a, it's a good gig. Mm -hmm. I tell you, uh, wouldn't trade a moment of it, <laughs> but going back a little bit, mm -hmm. what was life like for you growing up and how did your early experiences shape you? I had a I had a really weird upbringing. Um, I'll start it by from the other. My 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 mom uh, is uh, is now in Northern California um, mm -hmm. uh, with husband number seven. So my my childhood was an an interesting ride, um, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, I won't go into all of it, but it was there was some giant chaos out there, and and I mm -hmm. think a lot of it. Um, was what I spent a lot of time creating and drawing kind of little worlds of my own. And it was really for a way, a way for me to kind of create my own reality. Um, creatively, no matter how much chaos was going on in my life, I, I was lucky enough with my mom, uh, and that she supported every weird idea I ever had. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she was one of those people that was like, if I came and said, I decided when I grow up, I want to be a superhero, she'd go, okay, great. Can I make you a costume? How does that <laughs> no, it was just fully supportive of any weird creative thing. And, and I grew up, my grandfather was a very, very successful uh, big band leader and musician. Mm -hmm. And so I always perceived pursuing a creative career as, as a possibility. I, I saw a member of my family doing that um, and pursued a rock and roll career for a while. And that, that didn't actually work out, but there you go. <laughs> it was funny. Um, so all of it was there. And, and it was one of the things that Dan and I had in common. We both had parents, um, me with my mom, who, who basically said, yeah, pursuing artistic music, drawing, whatever, mm -hmm. is a completely valid choice. So it seemed strange that it, you know, it wasn't until I was 28 where I finally, you know, took the big leap and quit the business world to come pursue this full time. Yeah. Oh, I, 
I had a similar experience growing up and I feel like the older I get, the, the more I begin to really internalize how lucky of experience that was, is that even though my parents like went through a very traditional path themselves, they weren't very judgmental of any crazy idea I had. So the idea of making videos online is something that they're not like, they weren't too critical of at the beginning of it. I'm glad that that was a similar experience that you had. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, the yeah. other thing that I learned really and, and, and kind of became the theme of Milo Murphy's law, to be quite honest, was all of the crazy chaos and the weird stuff and the bad stuff and the confusing stuff that happens to you in your life. Um, you have a choice about how that affects you. Mm-hmm. That can either be the reason why life defeats you, or it can be something that you feel profoundly lucky that you have had those learning opportunities. I've always felt that in many ways, I've been better equipped to deal with, you know, any kind of uh, obstacles or unpleasantness that's thrown at me because I think, oh no, I've, you know, <laughs> through much more crazy stuff that we're fine. Mm-hmm. Don't don't sweat it. Just keep moving. These are the things that later you will realize will will be the the pieces of your armor, the tools in your bag. It's all just learning. Yeah, how to how to deal with things, how to overcome things. It's the it's the heartbreaks that make you understand that you're willing to get through those types of things. If you've never had any inverse adversity, any genuine adversity, mm-hmm. uh, then any of it that comes along will trip you up. Yeah. But if you're through tons of it, you're like, nah, guys. <laughs> You'll be great. It's <laughs> <laughs> it was like I I've, I've felt this before. <laughs> life's gonna throw stuff at you. You just gotta figure it out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's you gotta ride the waves. <laughs> the way I feel like you just yeah. gotta just gotta keep on keeping on. <laughs> As a surfer, I appreciate that analogy. Yeah. Very good, dude. Much appreciate. I I don't think I could handle the surf life. I'm I'm not coordinated enough to be able to do that. But it always looks. I idealize it. It looks great. Boogie boarding is as close as I could get. <laughs> you you would you would be surprised. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um. So as you moved through school, how closely were you connected to art, and did you think you were ever going to be involved in animation? Was that a path that you thought about nope. before you made the switch? No, not at all. Um, was not on my radar. I loved cartooning and doing cartoons. Mm-hmm. Um, I always thought that drawing was really cool. I, I did it from, I remember in first grade when I looked over to a kid next to me who was drawing stuff and I thought, oh, I want to do that. I mean, I started drawing then and I just, I drew all over every piece of paper, mountains of drawings, tons of them. Um, I found out years later, my mom saved a lot of them. She's got a box of my like first, second, third like, drawings growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't do a lot of art classes. And the older I got, the the fewer of them I took. I remember, um, I quit an art class in high school after a, a brief disagreement with the teacher uh, about the syllabus. <laughs> <laughs> became clear early on that we weren't going to be doing a lot of actual drawing with a pencil. Mm. And I 
made some comment about that because what I'd signed up for was the class description that sounded like a bunch of actual drawing and he wanted to do a bunch of other stuff. And, uh, and then he kind of, I remember when I pointed that out and he made some comment about me being ignorant of art and, and I went, Oh yeah, I got to leave now. We're, <laughs> we're not doing this. And I think that was the last art art class I took. Mm-hmm. And I got involved in uh, drafting. I took a drafting class from a brilliant teacher at Reseda High named Bella Palagi, Mr. Palagi. And I started getting into architectural rendering. And Mr. Palagi taught me more about perspective than most humans have a right to know. I mean, he was a brutal taskmaster and a very tough teacher. But I thought I was going to go be an architect or an architectural renderer. My uncle was an architect, and and I thought that would be really cool to do beautiful pictures of, you know, con- concept of what buildings would look like when they were finished. And then uh, and then that didn't work out. I ended up just kind of falling into weird, odd, what I thought were interesting jobs um, until I got into the computer industry. And I was I was in marketing for Microsoft at the distribution level, but I was still doing like the mailing postcards that we used to do, I was doing all the cartoons and drawing them. I wasn't telling them that, but I was like, yeah, I had some art done for, it was my cartoons <laughs> I was selling to uh-huh. myself for these things. Um, so I was doing art and then, uh, and it was, uh, the end of a, a day I'd gotten involved with a company that was selling computer accessories like imprinted mouse pads, mouse pads with pictures on them long before that was a really big thing. And I came home one day after closing a deal for like a million dollars. This was back in like seven, uh, uh, 86 or 87. I think it was 86. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I got home and realized I didn't care at all. It should have been a huge day, million dollar purchase order, big sale. I got home and went, eh, eh. and I had that terrible thought that if I don't stop doing this right now, I'm going to end up blinking and I'll be at retirement age and still doing something that I couldn't care less about. It's very successful at it. It was clearly good at it. It just didn't mean anything to me. So I quit. And it was a friend who had seen my drawings, who was in animation, who said, why don't you get a job in animation? And I'm like, oh, that would be so cool. In my head, the only people that worked in animation art-wise were people that actually did the animating, the frame-by-frame Chuck Jones stuff, which I don't really enjoy doing. I never have. I I did just enough of it to learn how to do it and then realized I didn't want to do that. It's too much like teeny little, you know, all day long for like three seconds. I just uh, would drive me crazy. And, uh, but he saw something in my artwork and my drawings and helped me get a portfolio together. And a few months after that, I got my first job doing backgrounds on the Simpsons back on second season. Still remember my first episode was blood feud. And the first thing I drew was Otto, the bus driver and his naked lady mud flaps. And that's when I had, I took a huge pay cut, but I was infinitely happier. Within moments, it was just like, oh, shafts of vertical light, choirs of angels singing. Mm-hmm. It was brilliant. But I got in when every, you know, whenever anybody asked me, what education did you have to get here? It's like none. I took perspective in high school and that was it. The rest of it I learned when I got to The Simpsons because I could draw backgrounds. 
a new perspective. That's what they wanted. I just spent my lunch time wandering around to every other guy in the building saying, what are you doing? Do you mind if I watch you doing it and tell me how you're doing it? And that's how I learned timing, figured out camera, figured out character layout, directing all of that stuff just by bugging people at lunch. So all of the people whose lunches I ruined all those years ago, thank you so much. <laughs> I owe you for my career. Wow. That's so, that's such a great tale. I think, I think when I, when I initially was doing research about you and heard that you made such a radical shift, like that, I just thought that was incredible because I feel like a lot of people don't think they have the opportunity to make a big change like that at any point or even make the initial leap into it. And so the fact that you just used the, the limited skills that you had the, but was still, you know, professional to get you into that place, I think is just a, I think that's the, the biggie with most people is they get onto a path and then they kind of feel trapped by it. I mean, I, I've talked to a lot of people who like, yeah, but I went to school for four years or eight years for this. Um, I can't stop doing it. It's like, well, if you're unhappy, stop. It, it, it's just that simple. Life's too short. You, you can't go on being unhappy. Um, and I always said I'd, I'd rather be happy and poor than unhappy and wealthy. Um, you know, my, my stepdad, uh, my mom's uh, fourth husband, Bill Marsh, great guy uh, who's passed away, sadly, but he was a huge, huge influence on me. He was the one who said, if you're doing what you love, it doesn't matter how much money they're paying you. Um, it'll always be enough. If you're doing something you hate, it doesn't matter how much money they're paying you. It'll never be enough. And he's right. He was also the guy who said, if there's ever a job you want to do, have a look at somebody doing it. And if you think you're at least as smart as they are, you can probably do that job. <laughs> and that's when I got into animation and looked around and I thought, well, I'm at least as smart as these guys. I must be able to learn how to do this. Mm -hmm. And so much of my profound wisdom actually came from Bill Marsh, uh, my stepdad. So those, those are wise words. I think about that a little bit when I'm like, when I, when I was in like classes in college in high school with people that were saying that they wanted to be doctors, but they were like really struggling with these early, like bio classes. I'm like, Oh man, that's, that's concerning, but I'm sure you'll get there. My doctor. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like the the build up is going to be worth it, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I I just I wish more um more young people um would feel that freedom um to not get trapped. I mean, I know I have friends that I grew up with that got into a certain thing and they're like, "Yeah, but I'm making good money. I have seniority. I've got a health plan." It's like, yeah, "But you're miserable. You're working for the weekend." Mm -hmm. It's not it's not worth it. The trade-off is, you know, trying things. And then when people, you know, do go into something that they think is their passion, they're afraid, if it isn't, to say, oh, I thought this was going to be it, but it isn't. It's okay. There was a, a really great, if you ever get a chance to listen to it, most of my life philosophy can be summed up. There's a thing called wear sunscreen. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Mm, There's I a haven't. spoken record done by Baz Luhrmann. It was from an essay that was written by a journalist uh, in Chicago. 
years ago, there was a rumor that it was a, 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 a commencement speech written by Kurt Vonnegut. It isn't. It was written by this very clever journalist. She was working for a paper in Chicago, and she wrote this thing to the class, you know, of whatever it was, um, and it's called Wear Sunscreen. Look it up. All of my life's philosophies uh, are found in that little set to music and Nancy's about is um, it's okay if you don't know what you want to do when you're 20. Heck, some of the most interesting 40-year-olds still don't know what they want to do. I'm <laughs> paraphrasing. But it's it's that ability just to, to, to choose happiness wherever you are in your career um, and, you know, figure out how to go for that because, you know, it's even like your kids. Like, I have a responsibility to my kids. And we can see, you have a responsibility your, to your kids to be happy and to model happiness for them. So they have a better chance of choosing happiness. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it, they'd yeah. much be much better off if you were happy, even if they were a little poorer, if they have a happy parent. That's yeah. worth everything. Yeah. Well, and I well, think, too, with that oh. is the idea of then the kids also have an idea of what it's like to get through those difficult moments of low income and figuring out how to navigate that. So when they if when or if they encounter that themselves, they have an understanding of, yeah, exactly the prioritization of what needs to be done. Yeah. Uh, it's it, it's hard mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to get trapped in, you know, I want the nice car and then eh, it's tough. Mm -hmm. But And yeah. I've seen some a lot of perspectives saying that work isn't necessarily a definer of a human being. And while I don't think it has to be at the same time, it's also so much of your life is dedicated to doing it. And so it feels like there should be some balance. <laughs> yeah. And, and it doesn't mean that, you know, you have to make a creative, I, I know guys, I have met people that are doing, you know, much more along the lines of a doctor or a lawyer uh, or, you know, those kind of professionals who you talk to him and deep down you think you'd be much happier working on cars. If, if you could swap this for a job as a mechanic, you would be infinitely happier. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily finding some great job by somebody's definition, but the thing that makes you happy getting up every day. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's also other versions of that. Like one of the guys I worked with on the Simpsons for years, he's been there for ages. One of the most phenomenal artists I know, um, and he's always stayed at the Simpsons. He's been, you know, offered tons of things elsewhere and upgrades and up, and he keeps moving up slowly, but for him, he likes doing that creative job. It's something he knows he can do and it, it doesn't really tax him. And then at the end of the day, I think he feels more free to do his own art. Mm. So that works for him. Yeah. It's not that he's, you know, doing something, you know, pushing the boundaries every day with his day job, but he likes that it just keeps him working. It doesn't, you know, disturb him. It doesn't make him exhausted at the end of the day and he can go home and pursue his creative stuff. Mm -hmm. So everybody's criteria is a little different. Yeah. It's finding the right balance for whatever is the priority for you. 
in your life yeah. at that moment. And it's a changing thing too. I, I feel like no matter how great the path that you're on, it's always, I feel like there's always that pull to trying to explore other things, especially when it's like a creative thing is like constantly f trying to figure out what the most fulfilling way of pursuing things. It's just, it's a, yeah. it can be a, it's a it's a road you never stop never going stop down. Going down. <laughs> uh, if life was easy, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, once you made the switch and you started working on The Simpsons, that was where you met Dan Pavenmeyer. Did you know right away that he was someone that you would want to collaborate with in the future? And how did you realize that this was a person who you would want? who you believed would be a good teammate as you moved forward? Well, we were sitting across the aisle. This was a couple of years later. He'd come over to the Simpsons when they moved. They were originally at Klasky Chupo over on the old converted apartment building on in Hollywood. And the production had eventually moved over to Film Roman up in North Hollywood. And we were sitting across the aisle from each other. So we just started talking. And what started out, you would pose for each other. Mm guy across the aisle, hey, stand up on one leg and put your hands up so I can draw that, you know. And we found out very early on that we were uh, incredibly simpatico, both musically uh, and comedically. Our comedy DNA was almost identical. So getting along and joking was just something that was frighteningly easy between the two of us. Um, so we bonded pretty quickly. And then during our hiatus, uh, I went over and got a gig writing on Rocco's Modern Life, um, which I just basically lied my way into. Uh, <laughs> I'd been doing storyboards, but not very long. And they were like, oh, we're looking for storyboard artists who write because they wanted to go back to doing cartoons the old fashioned way instead of a script, go from an outline and let the storyboard artist create all the dialogue. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, if, if, if you written before and I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely. All the time. Yeah. Ooh. Um, anyway, they, I, for whatever reason, they gave me a shot, but the first person I called as soon as I got there was Dan. I'm like, dude, cause he used to write a comic for his uh, college newspaper, the Trojan, um, called life is a fish. So he had had real writing experience. He'd written a, a, a B rate live action movie. Uh, and I called him and said, like, you got to get here. This is way too much fun. They're letting us make cartoons the way cartoons should be made. And he ended up getting paired with Doug Lawrence. I was paired with Steve Hillenberg, who went on to create SpongeBob. Mm -hmm. And uh, at, they had a shuffle, and they put Dan and I together as a writing team, a storyboarding writing team, originally with me as director and Dan as assistant director, which actually they weren't assistant directors. They were director and storyboard artists. And after the couple of boards, I went and said, you guys got to stop doing that. The person who's sitting in the room with you um, not only should get equal writing credit, but at the very least, that's an assistant director position. Um, and uh, we had the best time ever. The first episode we wrote together was uh, Wallaby of the West, where Rocco goes out to visit his uncle on a cattle ranch and brings his friend Heifer the Steer with him, which was just weird and bizarre. And at the end of it, we wrote our first song together, uh, Wallaby of the West. 
Sit back and I'll regale you about my nephew from Australia who wouldn't know a cow pie if it slapped him on the rear. He can't ride a rope or wrangle or play a good triangle. His best friend on the planet is a steer. Um, went on from there. But we just wrote that at the end of it for no reason at all other than it was <laughs> laugh. And that's when we were like, oh, okay, we have to figure out how to keep doing this together. And it was shortly after that we thought, well, we'll create a show, sell it, and we'll keep working together. And that was... Phineas and Ferb, back in like 1993. And, and then it took us 13 years to sell it. And in the interim, we didn't work together on one show. We both went our separate ways, um, took the jobs we could get. I ended up in England. I was working in England on a show for the BBC when Dan got a call from Disney saying, you know that show we said we didn't want last year? Well, we want it now. And called me and I came home and we started working together. Wow. Oh, that's wild. That, yeah, it was a heck of a ride. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what led up to creating Phineas and Ferb? Other than the idea of continuing to work together, what was the inspiration for this layered show that you decided to come up with? Well, two things. One, we were in the middle of one of those middle-aged, we weren't fully middle-aged, but still, we were older guys, and we were having a little rant about how kids today just sat around and played video games and watched movies on cable. And in our day, we used to get out and do, we used to make tree houses and build go-karts and put on plays. And, you know, we used to do stuff because we didn't, you know, there was bad TV on three channels for most of the day <laughs> and no cable. Uh and we just, it started from that lament of kids today, they don't do anything. Um, and then it was layered by our admiration for the original Rocky and Bullwinkle show. Um, and the way that they had like different stories going on. You'd tune in and you got Rocky and Bullwinkle story that came in a couple of installments and you got fractured fairy tales and Aesop's Fables and Peabody and Sherman. There was all these different things happening. And we really loved that. And so we kind of tried to combine that so that we had blended it with Phineas and Ferb story and what they're doing and Perry the Platypus. So we had a secret agent story because we love action adventure sequences um, and spy music. And originally we'd had the bugs, which later showed up in uh, the Alka Files episode of Phineas and Ferb. They were originally part of, of the main show. And we realized mm. that in order to get everything done that we wanted in 11 minutes, something had to give, and it was the bugs. Uh, but it was trying to combine the joy of Rocky and Bullwinkle and all that variety with kids that got out and were just able to do stuff, to build stuff. Yeah. Ah. It's so, it's, it's such an interesting show. Um, I, I remember when it first came on my uncle Mark, who's like this big Navy man. It's like high officer in the Navy. He was like, Oh, that, that Phineas and Ferb show is just freaking hilarious. And so that was like, that was, that was the way I got initiated into this show was when he came to visit from California and he was telling us about Phineas and Ferb. And uh, it's just, a, it's such a wild ride ver uh, and just such a unique premise. Uh, it's so fun. But why did you think that it took so long for the studios to see 
the potential in it. D- did you think it was just a bad timing or was it just a a discrepancy in not seeing what it could become? Well, it was a combination of things. And, and mm-hmm. we know we've been lucky enough to have, you know, maintained friendships with some of the executives. Um, and it, it was a variety of things. I mean, we optioned it was optioned by a company once very early on and they renewed the option. Um, but it was a an Indonesian company that was trying to make headway here in America. And what they were trying to do was use that um, show to also license some of their other shows from Indonesia. So it's like, if you buy Phineas and Ferb, you have to take this package. Mm. So that Mm. didn't work just because I think um, people didn't want the package. Uh, And other places for various reasons. The comment we used to get a lot is the show's too complicated for kids to follow. Kids won't be able to follow all those plot lines. And we were like, oh, you're wrong. You're underestimating the intelligence of kids. You should never underestimate the intelligence of kids. They are so much smarter than you're giving them credit for. So we weren't really willing to simplify it. So that was some of the reasons. Um, It was actually scheduled to go on, what was it, Fox Kids? They had a thing that, Fox, it was family Saturday viewing, and we were actually supposed to go on. And then at the end of that year, they canceled Fox Kids. Ah. This channel went away. We knew that we'd gotten almost to the top over at Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network. And one of them, we were like one of, there was a choice between two shows to do. And we found out that the exec went with one, the executive went with one that he was involved in rather than ours, which you and, okay. Um, so various reasons, but the, the number one complaint we used to get from it was it's too complicated for kids. They won't be able to follow all the plot lines and we weren't willing to compromise that. We just felt people were wrong <laughs> and, and by success, we, we realized that we were right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is, there is an opportunity to, I feel like it. When you first see it, I, at least this was my experience. When I first saw it, it was like, there's so much going on. What is with all of this? But as you, I feel like it's the ability to see more and more episodes that you get a better bearing of the the formula of it. And then, of course, that's when uh, you guys started messing with the formula and changing with it and being more self-aware with it. And so then you can do humor based off of just the the structure of the show of in and of itself. Deceiving people's expectations. But we had to do a good job of, of setting up those expectations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. And that's just, it's just such a, it's just such a fun show. But so could you talk about uh, what you were doing in London at the time? Like what was building up to that before uh, Disney started to become really interested in getting uh, Phineas and Ferb greenlit? I I had gotten an offer from a guy to uh, come out to London and help him do a primetime animated sketch comedy series. He'd written to me. We had a mutual friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was an American living in London. And he'd sold this show to the BBC tentatively. Um called Og, It's the Mr. Hell Show, and it was sketch comedy animated. 
And the last thing the BB said is, look, we're not going to go ahead and give you this commission unless you have somebody on staff who has primetime animation experience. So he was a fan of Rocco's Modern Life, but saw that I had done Simpsons and uh, King of the Hill. And so I had the credentials that the BBC required for him to get his show commissioned. So we communicated back and forth through emails. He came out and had a visit. We absolutely got along personally and comedically. And I took the job going back and being storyboard supervisor for the Mr. Hell Show. And we did a, a season of that. And before we got to the end of it, I got to work with some amazing folks. Uh, Gareth Edwards, a producer for the BBC, and John Plowman, who was the guy who produced Absolutely Fabulous and lovely folks. But by the time we got to the end of production, because it takes so long in animation, the person at the head of the BBC, the head of comedy, the head of the BBC had changed. Mm. And they didn't like the show. <laughs> this woman who'd taken over the position just came out apparently and said in a meeting somewhere that we weren't in, oh, I hate that show. Um, sorry, we have commissioned it. It wasn't my doing. I'm going to bury it uh, until it, the ratings go down and it dies and then we'll shelve it which they did. They put it on Sunday nights and a floating time frame. Sometimes it was on at 10 or 11. Sometimes it was on at one in the morning. You couldn't tell. And, and after a season, it died and they shelved it. Uh, in the interim, they'd already uh, sold it to Canada and Australia, where it did really well. We won nominations for like the Canadian version of the Emmys, and we got some comedy award in Australia. People still like it there. You mention it to those folks. And they're like, oh, yeah, I remember. That was a great show. Um, but that's why I went. And by the time we were wrapping up that show, I had gotten out of sync with the old season system. It used to be in America because we were producing cartoons for broadcast, not streaming, that we definitely had seasons. So there was a hiatus time and a production time. And my show in the UK wrapped as America was going into hiatus. So most of the jobs were gone. And while I was there, I got a bunch of offers to go work on other shows in the UK. Good offers. Um, directing and like that. And so I'm like, well, I might as well. And I ended up living there for six and a half years. Um, just going from show to show, I worked up in Manchester and was running global production for another animation company. I was having a good time, worked on a thing called Bounty Hamster, where I first started doing voices regularly. My first voice was on the Mr. Hell show. I played Josh, the reincarnation guy. Hello, my name's Josh, and I'd like to talk to you about reincarnation. And then he would die and come back as a different animal with the same voice. It was really <laughs> horrendous. Um, and then on Bounty Hamster, I started writing and doing voices. We worked for a while on a reboot of the Thunderbirds with puppets, which got shelved because a movie came out that did really badly, which was a shame because I was supposed to be the voice of Scott Tracy, the pilot of Thunderbird One. Um, and I just kept working until Dan called me one day and said, I think I've sold Phineas and Ferb to Disney. You want to come back? And I'm like, yes, the sound you hear is me packing. But it was great. My son was born over there. I love it there. Um, if I had the opportunity some point in my life to go back there and live, I'd absolutely take it. It's great. Wow. Yeah, I was going to say, like, 
what was your experience like growing up in America and going to live there? That sounds like a really unique experience, especially it's cool that you got to have uh, professional experiences that allowed you to like break into new areas like voice acting and doing fun things like that in a completely different setting. (laughs) There are much smaller productions there. So you really are allowed to do a lot more within the production. They're much more lighter on their feet and uh, management light because their budgets are smaller. So you just, you do stuff. I'd always loved England. I ran into um, Monty Python way before a lot of people because my uncle, who was a musician, um, was given promotional albums, and one of them was the early one of the early Monty Python matching tie and handkerchief. I think this was in the late seventies, mid seventies. God, it had to be mid seventies. And I started listening to these records and trying to figure out what they were saying and why it was funny because I didn't have the show to go with it. I just had records. Mm. And I knew it was mm. funny, but some cases I didn't know why. So I'm literally having to, before the internet, study English culture and figure out English words and why is this got my friends into it. So by the time the first films came out, we were already big Python fans. And it kind of, uh, and I love history. Um, I think that would be the only other thing I would want to get in animation, race car driving, uh, and history. Maybe surfing, animation, race car, animation, music, race car driving, history. Anyway, I love history, so <laughs> really interested in British history. And when I took, um, my, before I dropped out of community college, which is the only college I went to, um, I studied the history of England. And while I was studying that, a friend decided that we should go bum around Europe for three months. And he was from England. And he said, we can start by going and visiting my mom in Exeter, which is a small cathedral city in the southwest of England. And I said, let's go. And at the time, I was working at a job in aerospace that I'd gotten after high school, uh, working to make a valve for the jetpacks that go up in the space shuttle. Don't ask me how I got involved in that, other than my knowledge of drafting. It was weird. Um, but I quit that, uh, to go over to England and I ended up staying there for a year. I overstayed my visa a little bit, but I got two jobs, worked in a nightclub, fell in love with the music, the place, the history, the town where I lived. When I walked to work, I walked by the Roman wall. The nightclub that I was working in was built within the walls of the old Norman castle. It was an amazing place to be. And I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, And as soon as I got home, I was a little sorry I'd come home. Um, And then when I had a chance to go back, I was like, oh, yeah. Because I'd been going, I'd save my nickels and dimes and spend all my holidays there. So when I got a chance to go back and and work and live, I was there. Wow. Then that was, this is a perfect opportunity for you. You were already like, you're already a huge fan of being there. So you just need an opportunity to be there. (laughs) Dave, Dave, the guy who hired me, I think, was expecting to have to convince somebody to go to England. And I'm like, oh, no, you had me there. You have to convince me about the show. Going to England is like, yes, I'm in. (laughs) Take me now. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you referenced that in England, the productions are smaller and makes you more nimble. The one of the continuities I've noticed with people that work in the animation industry that often move up um, higher is that. It's typically their experience outside of the big studios that give them the experience that allow them to get higher up. 
mm-hmm. in the big studios when they come back or if they go into it. Um, it's, one of the best things that ever happened to me, I always felt for my career was was the fact that I had that I wasn't 28 until I got into animation. So I'd had careers that were as diverse as digging ditches and doing concrete work with my stepdad. I'd done janitor work. I worked in a fiberglass factory. We were making fiberglass race car bodies and and boats. Um, I mean, I, I'd done telephone sales and detailed cars for a living and worked in, you know, everywhere you could imagine. And, and it, it, to the degree that I know some people that I knew for years just assumed I was lying about half the jobs I had because I'd say, <laughs> oh, I used to do that. And people thought Swampy's just a jerk who says he'd done everything. But I just used to try everything. Um, and before I got to be a computer executive. So by the time I get into animation, I operated at the top level of business at one of the fastest rising industries, you know, the computer industry from when it was a mom and pop to, you know, I worked with, I literally worked with Bill Gates. I sat up in Washington on, you know, Lake Washington and partied with him. And um, I had a very weird background, but what that gave me is that I understood the business side of things. And I didn't have any fear about talking to executives and company presidents and stuff. There was no, you know, it was like, yeah, I understand your world perfectly. And I think because of that, executives were much more willing to trust me with their money. Because when you sell a show, that's essentially what they're doing is they're trusting you with a check for like $10 million. And they have to be able to look at you and think you're going to deliver what they need and with most animators and, and most folks, you meet them and you wouldn't trust them with $10 million of your money. <laughs> but if you can sit down and really quickly let them know, oh, I absolutely understand how all this works and profit and loss and that this is a factory. It's a creative factory, but it's still a factory. You put the stuff in one end and cartoons come out the other. Mm-hmm. It relaxes mm-hmm. them. They're like, oh, you get this. And literally just creatively, being able to have personal insight into a lot of different work and jobs. When I was creating stuff, I had things from experience that I could bring to the creative process that a lot of other people didn't have who'd gotten, you know, this was their first job out of college. I've worked digging ditches, man, all the way up to, you know, full suit and tie and traveling around the world doing marketing presentations. So that to me was a big advantage. I think had I not taken so long to get into animation, I would have been less effective. It wouldn't, you know, I went from getting into the industry with my first job to being uh, a director and writer on Rocco's Modern Life within like four and a half years. Wow. Yeah. I had the confidence at that point to go, yeah, I know how to do that. I know how to manage people. That's not a problem. Mm Mm-hmm. That's the easy part. I can do that in my sleep. The harder part is the creative part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that you had this repertoire that you could start implementing into the animation industry. Um, does when you would talk to executives and like pitch your show, would you do you go into it trying to appeal to? what they're looking for? Like, do you give a creative outline of the show and then indicate how it could be used in marketing and 
like toys or things like that? Or is it main, focusing no, on the creative? That's a mistake a lot of people make. Mm. Don't come in and tell them how great a website it would make or what products they can sell, especially like you go into Disney. Trust me, Disney knows how to market stuff. <laughs> they know how to make products. Please don't try to teach them how to do that. They will handle that perfectly well. Mm-hmm. They want a great show. If it's a great show, they'll figure all that out and they'll talk to you. There will be more conversation. You can give them ideas down the road, but they don't want you to come in selling a commercial opportunity. Yeah. They want you to, to come in selling a great show because if nobody watches and cares about your show, it doesn't matter how great the marketing opportunities are. So don't go sell that aspect of it. Don't spend time doing it. Don't do drawings of your characters on t-shirts or phone covers or God knows what. Don't ever. Mm-hmm. You can keep those, but just don't put your energy there. Your energy should be there in your characters. You need to know everything about them. You need to understand how your show works, where the humor is, all that's much more important. The, the, the business knowledge comes in when usually upon follow-up questions. Mm-hmm. When people ask you, well, how do you intend to produce this? Things like that. Um, I was lucky that, like I said, I, I understood how the financial side of it worked. I understand a spreadsheet. I know how costs work and profit and loss and all that kind of stuff. But that stuff came up afterwards. Once they liked your show and they started talking to you, because once they liked the show, now they want to see if they can trust you with $10 million. (laughs) (laughs) They'll have a whole conversation and you want to make that decision easy because you'll be up there with five other good ideas. The end of the day, you have to give them a reason to choose yours. And it's going to be because they trust you. Mm -hmm to execute the show you have pitched them. Yep. That's exactly what I was thinking. It was you need to first show how you can impl- like create a compelling show. And then it sounded like the follow-up like questions the- were proving that you could execute on it better the in the best possible way. Yeah. And, you know, we, Dan and I did, you know, had a great time being showrunners. Uh, and I know it's funny. I've talked to a lot of animators about this. A lot of animators want to be showrunners. Um, it was much easier for Dan and I because we shared that duty, which means we could spend a lot more time being creative because we could share. If you're a solo creator of a show and you become a showrunner, the amount of time you can dedicate to the creative becomes very curtailed. And much of what you have to do as an actual showrunner, a lot of it is unpleasant. It's the meetings, the executives, the negotiations, the staff management, hiring, firing, um, answering you know letters, making decisions about where you're spending your money. A lot of that isn't fun. So a lot of these guys I see that want to be a showrunner, I think, think about that. You may not. You might want to be a show creator who works closely with the showrunner, who does all of that icky stuff that you're gonna hate Mm -hmm. so that you can spend more time being creative on your show and playing around. Because I know some guys that it just, it crushed them. Because it's a lot of being a showrunner isn't fun. I find it easy because I still like that business side of my life and I can do it without thinking about it because I have the experience. So I can spend more time on the creative just because I can get through the business part quicker. Yep. I know where to trust and where not to trust. Yeah. I think I think that's something that 
like as you mentioned earlier of the idea of being an animator i can't imagine like sitting down at a computer and animating like a few seconds over a few months i think that just sounds way too in the in the actual like swamp for me i want and to be picture yeah yeah exactly it's like i want i want the to have more control over the uh entire process and be able to be able to put more thought into the the entirety I, I, of it i don't like this you know tiny d there's a there's a dutch term for it which i won't translate called mirenoker um the dutch people out there will think that's really funny um but it's just that that tiny that i can't take yeah i need to be overlooking the bigger pictures of story and character and arc and seeing it all as a unit mm -hmm. um that to me is a lot more fun and exciting yeah. and that's and having said that i watch people that can animate and i am in awe of that ability and that talent i watch the things that dan who i worked with is a great animator as well He's great big picture, but he's also an amazing animator. And I watched the stuff that he used to do so easily. And it's like, ah, oh, huge appreciation for that talent. But I also know it is not me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's to animate is to like think about all of those small details and to have the life actually start to come through onto the page. And I think that's I mean, it absolutely is like a complete art form in and of itself. It's something amazing to see but i think and i think as to what you were describing about being a showrunner is that i feel like if someone adores being in the the grains of every little creative aspect of a bringing a character to life or doing something along those lines that it would be difficult to then have a lot of your time ripped away from doing that and how do you how do you manage wanting to be involved in those small things, but you have to do the big things being a showrunner from what you described. sounds like you're pretty much running, running your own business inside of the, the company. Oh. It's just the show. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's much more businesslike and, and, um, you know, and I, and I've known some animators that want to be involved, you know, or guys that have sold their show creators that want to be involved in every aspect and, and see all the storyboards and do all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and if, if that's what you're like, being a, a, a classic showrunner isn't good for you. You won't have the time to do that. You know, you'll end up working all night and sleeping at the studio and being miserable. Um, one of the things that I always thought and, you know, egotistically, um, that Dan and I were really good at was giving the people, the creative people that, and even the people who weren't designated as creative, who were still really creative, the people that worked with us, the freedom to bring stuff to the show. One of the great joys I have is the number of times people will come to me um, or email or on social media and tell me about some part of the show that means the world to them or that they thought was the funniest thing in the whole wide world. Um, the number of times that we've realized that it was nothing that Dan and I wrote. It was something one of our team brought to us and we thought was funny or we didn't think was funny and they convinced us to let them make that work. And we didn't have to be responsible for all the goodness in the show or all the funny or all the craziness. We had a whole team of people. All we had to do at a certain point 
was pull our own weight with the creative input and make sure that none of the ideas that people were bringing us violated the characters or broke the rules of our world. And that's what we always used to make sure we were doing. It's like, if you have a crazy idea that seems way outside of the life of the show, but you really want to do it because you think it's great, you have to do the work to make sure that it does so within the confines of that character. We won't let you shortcut character arcs. It's like to get Phineas mad, we've done it a couple of times. And when we do, it's amazing, but it's a long journey to get there because that's not his personality. You can't be cavalier with that or it makes your characters less than real. So Dan and I used to just try to figure out a way to include as many ideas as we could and make sure it didn't violate that stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's when you're show running, it's a lot more on top and hiring people that you trust and whose work you love and finding a way to integrate that with your idea and you know letting them play with your toys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Was it an exciting process once it got greenlit to go out and search for people to be a part of the show? And how did you go about doing that? Was um, Did you like look for people that you'd worked with in the past? Was that the first place you start? What's oh, the th- process yeah. like for that? Combination of things. The easiest one is to reach out to the people you know, who you've worked with in the past, whose work you love that you can trust. Same mm-hmm. thing that you know, you're doing. Who do you hire? People you can trust. Uh, I've, I, I, you know, your show is your baby. I, I have to bring people in who I would hand my baby to and know that they're not gonna drop him. Um, so yeah, there was a group that we'd always been in touch with and folks that we, you know, whose work we'd admired on different shows. And those were the first round. And then you start going from, I mean, Disney's really good about making sure their people are taken care of. So Disney brought us a bunch of their favorite people whose work we looked at. And then we picked a bunch of people from there. And then you take recommendations from the crew you trust on other people. And then sometimes you're just looking at portfolios and, you know, their video reels online to say, yeah, I think that could work. Uh, but it starts out with, yeah, first you bring in the folks you know you can trust. Because you have to get going right away. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. These are I I think it's just fascinating to hear about how shows and films come to actually be because i know it's a a process that's much more complicated than it's ever depicted in um documentaries or behind the scenes but it's i think it's but even though it's not as simple or as elegant it's a uh, still a process that i think is fascinating and very cool to learn about yeah it's, it was a lot more complicated than I ever thought it was before I got a gig in it. When I started seeing all this other stuff, it's like, what is this stuff? I had no idea this was part of this. And then, of course, a bunch of the stuff that I learned was soon, um, you know, dead tech. We don't use cameras anymore. Heck, we don't use paper anymore. People yeah. don't draw on paper. What is this? The Dark Ages drawing on paper? <laughs> I remember the first time being at the studio where we were – we were doing something. I think we were actually working on the Star Wars special. We were in a room and we realized nobody knew where there was a pencil sharpener. So he's like, where's all the pencil sharpeners? We used to, just we had to run around and found, somebody said, oh, I have one. It's in a box somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh yeah. This whole place used to be covered in pencil dust and pencil shavings and eraser dust. And mm-hmm. that happened in a while. <laughs> I One behind the scenes thing about disney was talking about the idea of as soon as 
a drawing wasn't working, you should just throw it away. And then and then they were like gave the the warning. They were like Disney eventually started to recycle in like 1980 or 1990s or something. It was like we we burned a lot of paper at that time, but it, was, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't known at the time. Uh, well, it's but, funny that it's it's really much more about volume. One of the first things you learn when you get into the business is so opposite of how you've felt about your drawing for so long. Your drawings aren't precious. There's a million of them. For one thing, the biggest advice I'll give to, to artists out there and people who want to draw for a living is stop trying to make uh, a few very perfect drawings. That will hurt you. You need to make thousands of drawings. And somebody much wiser than me uh, said, uh, you know, every artist has 10,000 bad drawings in them. Your job is to get them out of you as soon as possible. So fill pages with some idea. Throw your eraser away. Stop erasing things. Just do more. Fill books with doodles of hands and eyes and draw. It's not about perfection. But the first time you get in the business, you know, you've always been told by your parents, oh, that's a beautiful drawing. You should be careful with it. And, you know, you work on these things really hard and erase the between presentation and all this. I was doing these architectural renderings and all. And the first time somebody, you hand them a drawing in animation and they go, oh, yeah, this is great, but I'm going to take and they tear it. You're like, you just tore my drawing. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. You don't, you have to let that go. Mm -hmm. There will be millions of drawings. There's just no reason you can keep any of these as precious. Just yeah. make more. And, uh, and that was a weird experience. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I can't. Yeah. I'm it's that, that must, if you hadn't had that thought process put upon you, that must've just been absolutely rattling. It was a little, my, and Dan had the same, uh, that experience with, uh, I think he remembers his director was Susie Dieter, who I worked with as well on The Simpsons. And the first time she tore a drawing and she went, oh yeah, you need to get over that. These, there's nothing precious about these. Just let it go. Mm -hmm. And you tape them together and strip them <laughs> in place. And yeah, it's crazy. But it does, uh, it does make you a better artist. Mm -hmm. Just generally, not just a better animation artist or a better animator or background artist. You just get better because you do things millions of times. So whenever anybody watches me draw and they go, oh, my God, you do that so fast. It's like, well, I've done a lot of these, <laughs> millions of them. And especially when it comes to a character like Phineas, I have drawn him thousands of times. So it would scare me if it wasn't that fast. Yeah, truly. Yeah. It's the it's the idea of like you spend by the after you've done so many, spending eight hours on like one original, your first drawing is going to be much much worse than eight seconds on a on a drawing that you do after your millionth drawing. It's it's just the figuring it out and the um the uh, the making the adjustments as you go as you learn and it the, the thing that I do now occasionally which is funny. Every so often I go back and do just art for the sake of art. Um, mm -hmm. Often either like maybe surf art or uh, I'll, I love drawing pictures of cars. Uh, and I've, I've posted some. If you go to my Instagram feed and scroll through, occasionally I do these monochromatic drawings of cars. And I used to 
regularly before spend hours on a drawing. And that's harder for me to do now. I kind of, if I'm not done with the drawing after about an hour, um, the likelihood of me getting through it, you know, I'll lose interest because everything mm -hmm. in animation is so immediate. It moves so fast. And so I've kind of reduced the amount of time I, I'm willing to spend on art. Hang, mm -hmm. hang on just a second. Okay. Sorry. Don't go away. Hello. Hello. Amuse yourself. Okay. It's swampy. <laughs> guest on on Isaac Carlson's podcast <laughs> <laughs> this is this is Eric Christian Olson who thought I was Tesla Wow oh I've told them <laughs> I will talk to you later my friend good luck with Tesla It's a it's a fellow surfer. I'm sorry I jumped on that. I normally don't do that, but we're involved in doing a thing for a surf therapy charity that I work for. That he so I wanted to make sure it wasn't mm -hmm. something important about that. And his schedule is murder. So I'll make the time to get on the phone just in case. Because if yeah. I, some if you don't catch him in that five minutes he has, it'll be days. So, <laughs> so yeah, special guest Eric Christian Olson from NCIS Los Angeles. Uh, and an all-around lovely human being, I must say. Mm -hmm. Ah, very cool. Um, so, man, where where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Um, what was it like when you realized Phineas and Ferb was going to be something that was a large cultural experience? What was there a definitive moment that you suddenly realized that? Yes. When 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 we watched the walk around characters that they were going to have at the park for the first time come with we were over at a studio in Burbank where they do those walk around characters and they told us they were going to do them and we got it and yeah we knew that it was successful and it was successful globally and but when you actually see those characters walk out and I burst into tears I mean I'm a I'm a Southern California native born and raised I've been going to Disneyland since I was old enough to be pushed around in a baby carriage mm -hmm. the thought that characters I created co-created were actually going to be part of Disneyland that was the moment where, and you know, Dan and I just both wept. It was just so emotionally overpowering. Mm -hmm. That was the moment, without a doubt. And you're yeah. like, okay, this, they are part of, uh, they are part of the history of Disney, a very big part. And that's, wow. Yeah. Can't be better than that, man. 
<laughs> yeah, I yeah, it was phenomenal. I I remember when Phineas and Ferb took over uh the Kim Possible experience and World Showcase of Epcot. And oh, that yeah. was like I was like, "Oh, it's it's there's not a lot of times where like, you know, feature films get involved in the parks a lot more than the Disney animation for television. And so it's it's so cool to be able to see it be able to penetrate into uh, an even more worldwide audience and even more just proving that it's like rising to the crop of one of the best things that Disney has put out. Yeah, it. it yeah, it's, you know, being part of. <laughs> yeah, being part of of the parks when they permanently install you. Um, especially when you're a TV show and not a film. Uh, it feels like it's even more of an accomplishment. There's almost and and this is not to downplay any of the films like, you know, the stuff that the, the feature guys do is is just awe inspiring and long form stuff so hard and I love all those things but the likelihood that the feature films are going to get included in the park is much more likely just because the amount of marketing budget that they have to justify that goes into it and it is you know much more global um so it feels like when we make it when the tv guys creep into the park that feels like a real accomplishment yeah something that's really special um so yeah yeah it's it's good <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I can I only imagine. I heartily recommend it. Yeah, so. <laughs> so, now that you've had years of experience being a showrunner of an animated series, what has been the biggest struggle and the most satisfying parts of having that job? Um, I think the. Uh, the struggles you get are mostly just for creative freedom or getting, you know, people to trust you to do things that they're uncomfortable with. Um, I remember very early on after we'd sold Phineas and Ferb, I had this moment of clarity in a meeting where we were struggling about how we were going to do it and what people wanted to approve and the materials and stuff. And it was about whether or not we were doing scripts or storyboards. And, uh, and I suddenly realized what it was that they were asking. And I said in the meeting, I said, the thing is, I understand what you want. You guys, you guys want us to make you comfortable. You want to feel comfortable and confident. And the truth is, if I'm doing my job correctly, none of us will be comfortable. If we're all comfortable, it means we're doing something safe. And you haven't asked us to do something safe. You want us to create the next big hit the next big thing. And if we're doing that right, you will be uncomfortable because nothing will be familiar and we'll be uncomfortable too. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, no, I can't help you there. You just have to get used to being uncomfortable and you have to trust us that we can make it good. And I think that's true with everything. If you are trying to do something groundbreaking that really stands out, um, Nobody will be comfortable in that process. And if you are, you're not doing anything differently enough to make it stand out. Mm -hmm. and so get uncomfortable. 
and learn how to relax while being uncomfortable. You know, one of the first things that that somebody said uh, early on, and I think I was still moving back from the UK when somebody said to Dan about Phineas and Ferb, would 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 you be okay with us making the characters more attractive? <laughs> Dan was like, yeah, actually we would, because the reason that people are going to love these guys is not because they're attractive or not. I mean, you know, the Simpsons were never attractive and people loved them. There's, you know, these are not pretty good looking characters. Um, but if they look different than everything on your network, people are going to notice it. And that's what we need them to do is, is notice it. If they notice the show, we think we can make a show good enough that we'll make them want to see it again. But if they don't ever notice the show in the first place, we don't have a chance. Mm. And we still have a box somewhere filled with some of the uh, the alternate Phineas and Ferb designs that they did. And we're just like, none of these are acceptable. We We need these characters to look the way they are, as ugly as they are. And again, uh, to Disney's credit, um, they allowed us to go with, you know, things that we felt passionate about. And if we were really passionate about it, they uh, they gave us the thumbs up. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, uh, it's as soon as as soon as something especially starts to work, that's when things start to get. It often feels like studios try to make things feel more homogenized, and I feel like that's, uh, you know, and, and again, no discredit to any of the people that are working on feature films, for example, but. A lot of times I feel like consumers get confused of what studio makes what because all of the feature films are animated in a very similar way. Yeah. They all start to look the same. Yeah. Which means that it's difficult to stand out. And if the only thing that stands out is the uh, the logo at the beginning, that's not a great place to be in <laughs> creatively necessarily. You understand how you get there because, again, I go back to the I'm going to trust you with $10 million. Oh, yeah the amount of money is people are saying look i have to justify this as a business decision and a creative decision mm -hmm. but it's a business decision so if this goes horribly wrong everybody's going to point at me so i'm going to want to use all of the information that i have about what makes a, a successful show to ensure we get as much of that in this show and you know sometimes that's techniques and look and feel and stuff you know, people tend to approve things sometimes because they look at it and they feel comfortable with it and don't realize that what they're approving is a drawing that looks just like another character from another show. And that's why it's comfortable. And you go, oh, yeah, that one feels familiar. I like that one. Mm -hmm. um, and the truth is often the much better choice is stuff that you're uncomfortable with. Yeah. yeah. It's the same thing with things that our writers and storyboard artists used to bring us. There was stuff that they brought us that the first reaction is, Absolutely. No, you can't. No, no, do something else. It's wrong. And if they persist, you realize, actually, if we can figure out a way to execute that, that's a pretty good idea, simply because it wasn't what I expected. And if you just give me what I expect, I can't expect to, to actually create anything surprising. So yeah. let's yeah. figure out a way to do the stuff that surprises us. And again, just make sure it doesn't violate the rules of the characters in the land that we've set up. Or if it does, it does it in a way that's justifiable and believable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think you approach that in a really 
intelligent way from the perspective of trying to push other people to be uh, uncomfortable and having empathy for those people and for the people that are wanting to rattle your world a little bit, having empathy for both groups uh, is a good way to make sure that you're finding the right balance between pushing in the right ways moving mm -hmm. forward. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, do we have time for a few more questions? Is that all right? Let's, uh, let's do one more. One more. Okay. I'm already a clover, but I can still justify this. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. I appreciate it. Um, no worries. Uh, so I would say if we had one more thing is what would you tell the listeners uh, is the, if they were going to ask, what's the number one piece of advice that you would give them to help them follow their dreams? Yeah. You know, there's all that typical stuff of, uh, you know, don't let people tell you, you know, you can't, especially in the creative. It's like, used to be you'd get a lot of, when are you going to get a real job? <laughs> you, can't, you can't do these funny little pictures. Um, but I think the better advice is what we talked about earlier. Um, don't be afraid that whatever path you choose, you're stuck with. And I see that with young people. They get pressured a lot when they're young to find their passion. And I think there's a danger with, you know, people feeling like they have to continue along the path they chose, especially when they were younger. It's like, you don't. Um, it's okay not to have a passion. You may not find it. That's fine. Don't feel bad if you don't. And I've seen kids really frustrated that, well, I don't have my passion yet. What am I going to do? It's like, dude, you're, you're 12. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty of time. The most important thing is to be able to look around and, and experience stuff and be open to new things because you don't know what is going to be the thing that makes you go, ooh, that's cool. And go follow those things. Go do those things. But equally, when you pursue those things, and at some point you may or may not realize that that wasn't as great as you thought it was, don't be afraid to change. It's fine. You haven't wasted the time you've spent before. And I, that's, I think that's what gets into people's head is, yeah, but I, I've invested so much into that. Isn't that then wasted? It's like, no. It really is not wasted because believe me, from personal experience, all the stuff you've learned getting to here will all become valuable in whatever you do next. None of that is wasted. You are learning lessons all the time. But keep, keep your eyes open. Something I told my son, I said, the reason I want you to go to university is not necessarily because I want you to get a degree in anything in particular and then necessarily follow that job. If that works out, great. More power to you. But the main reason I want you to go to university is I want you to get out there and be surrounded by tons of different people who are excited about all kinds of different things. And from different places and in different ways and all of that, I want you to be able to see all that different stuff because the likelihood is whatever you think is the thing you want to do now will completely change at some point in your life and make sure you know that that's okay. 
That's those those are some wise words. It's it's not about figuring out what you want to do right now. You got to connect the dots in the past. It, it's you can't connect the dots in the future. Everything makes more sense in retrospect. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a very direct path from where I began to where I am now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it all does when you look back, you can go, oh yeah, everything that I've used to get here, all of those parts made me successful here. No way I could have seen that until much later. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. You have to go, you have to forge your path before you could see the path. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, oh. Just change. Well, Swampy, it's been an absolute pleasure to be able to speak to you today. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a really good chat. Uh, it was nice. There was uh, stuff I don't don't always get to talk about. So thanks, man. Yeah, absolutely. And to all of you who are listening, if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. And as I continue to share the stories of people who are following their passions and achieving their dreams, it would mean a lot if you shared the podcast with a friend. To all of you fun people who are out in the world, thank you so much for listening and have a magical day.